Hey friends and fellow geekologists, you're getting ready to hear one of the panels we hosted at Theology Beer Camp last October in Missouri. A huge thank you to Trip Fuller and Homebrew Christianity and the Venues Church for hosting us and allowing us to be a part of the zest. We had so much fun and it was so meaningful to be at the intersection of philosophy, theology, and pop culture with some amazing experts in those fields of discipline. We do have the dates for Theology Beer Camp 2024. It will be October 17th through 19th in Denver, Colorado. And this year, the title for Beer Camp is going to be The Return of the God Pods. You can follow God Pods 2024 on social media with any updates uh, that they um, share with us. And tickets are on sale now. And so we hope to see you there in October. Normally on the show, we attempt to keep things as child-friendly as possible, but every now and then we can hit some harder subject matters or may even have some verbal discourses that may not be suitable for younger or more sensitive ears to hear. In this episode, there may be either a discussion on more mature topics or may have strong language or perhaps both at once. Your discretion is advised. All right, Geek Stage. Let's hear it, Geek Stage. Yeah, all right. Yeah, the Geek. Stage. Geek stage. stage, geek stage. I love it. I love it. Welcome. I'm Will Rose. I um, was the host of Theology Beer Camp in Chapel Hill a year ago. How many people were at uh, Theology Beer Camp last Woo! year? We got a couple out there. Oh. Their trip provided some geek space at that uh, beer camp, and it was success. I uh, done some work in the intersection of those things we geek out on, and theology and philosophy. And so since there was some geek space there, it grew. And then leading up to this beer camp, he was like, we should have an entire geek stage devoted to geek things. We're like, absolutely it should. And so that's why we're here. And uh, just a quick, quick story. Um, I was pastoring a church in South Carolina about 20 years ago. And um, it was right when the Marvel movies were coming out and my congregation members knew that I was a big Star Wars and comic book fan, and they, we were having conversations in the narthex about, like, what's your take on the latest Marvel movie? Or what do you think is going on here? Or we're like, have you ever read this book or fantasy novel? And so we're having these conversations in the narthex pretty, you know, quickly and didn't have a lot of time. And I said, why don't we move into the sanctuary? Let's have longer conversations about those things that we're geeking out on. And we called it God Loves Geeks. So it was like the God Love Geeks book club. Feel free to use that in whatever context you have. And, and so we just, um, and that God Loves Geeks book club snowballed and the spirit took and ran with it. And it just kind of grew with that. There are lots of people out there who uh, were geeks and geeked on all kinds of things, whether it's comics or movies or fantasy. And um, it just snowballed. So eventually it, we were able to be a part of like Comic-Cons and having panels, Finding God in Comics. And then um, we got podcasts where we can become friends and talk about it. And then so uh, now it's here at Beer Camp and we have space for that. So I think uh, this space is uh, a kind of you have permission to be a both a geek and a person of faith because the things that we geek out on, those things that we love, often wrestle with and ask the same questions uh, that we do in theology or in church. And how do they intersect with one another? How do we continue to ask these questions and these grand narratives that we love and adore, but also go deep to who we are 
um, as people and people of faith. So that's what this space is going to be. And what we have two fantastic individuals who are going to set the stage, per se, about geekdom and fandom and how that intersects with theology and philosophy. So I'm really excited for Donna Noel to kick us off here. And they'll talk for a while, and then we'll have some Q&A um, with uh, some podcasters. We'll introduce ourselves when it's time for that. And then... Um, and then we'll have some time, hopefully, at the end for some Q&A. We'll go from there. So let's hear it for Donna and Noel. Thank you all. Uh, my name is Donna Bowman. I teach uh, interdisciplinary studies at the University of Central Arkansas. I have a theology degree from the University of Virginia, and I work in open and relational theology. And if you're interested in process theology, you can come here, Travis McCracken, and me talk about the doctrine of providence in which I will be rehabilitating Bart from the, the vilification that was visited upon my favorite theologian of all time in the last session. You definitely want that. Um, but um, I, we're here because uh, Noel is, Noel Murray is also my husband, and we, um, we've been writing a, a criticism of movies, television, for Noel Music as well. Comics. Comics, yeah. Com Eisner Award nominated Noel Murray, all right? <laughs> yes, this is true. Um, so yeah, it's a huge deal. So um, that's, that's the intersection that I think is a little bit unique, that I'm a theologian who's also spent um, 30 years writing about pop culture just like for alternative newspapers and uh, websites and so on and so forth. Um, and, and Noel, not a theologian. No, but my dad was an Episcopal minister. Um, so I'm a, sort of a PK. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So um, uh, I want Noel to kind of tell you about his biography and then we'll talk about geek cred and then we'll go into like what you're doing now. <laughs> Okay. Um, so yeah, I've been writing professionally about m movies, music, television, comics, pop culture in general for, is it? I, I hate doing the math on these things these days. Since I guess, the 1990s? Yeah, I guess my first published paid piece was in the student newspaper in 1990. So how long ago was that? 30? 33. 33 years? Okay. Um, and I, I was talking earlier, you know, uh, to our, our host over here that uh, um, I'm probably most known, I was part of a group of people at the AV Club, which was the pop culture-focused offshoot of The Onion, based out of Wisconsin and then kind of went national. So um, I started writing for them in the year 2000, and basically from 2000 to about 2012, um, you know, I was covering constantly lots of different things for them. And then around 2004, 2005, um, we were doing mostly film and music and books, and we added television. And adding television, both you know, made the AV Club, I think, a lot more popular because it was something that people um, could easily access, unlike film reviews or book reviews, where sometimes you have to get, you have to actually go get the product and consume it. I hate using the words consume and product, but you get what I'm trying to say here. Uh, TV, you can just turn on. And so we had a lot more conversations um, through the AV Club and kind of built up those kind of relationships uh, that were beyond just is this TV show good? Is this TV show bad? But more, what is this TV show trying to say? Um, you know, um, where do we think it's going? How are we interacting with the characters? Um, all those kinds of things that I think are conversations that make pop culture um, richer than just entertainment, but also something that has meaning to our lives. 
Um, and so that's what I did for that long. And since then, I've been freelancing for lots of different places, um, mostly the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Vulture, Rolling Stone, um, various other outlets. Yeah. So uh, we wanted to start today by talking uh, about kind of a case study. And then I hope that will lead to a lot of conversation about a lot of different television, maybe a lot of television. I hope a lot of television. <laughs> um, so um, one of the things you covered in the AV Club that really made, made your name and made you write widely read was Lost. And you covered it from the second season fourth on? Fourth season fourth on. Fourth season on, yeah. but you went back and, and did the first three seasons yeah. as well. So these are episodic reviews. Sometimes you hear them called recaps. I think we really kind of try to like not say recap. Uh, a lot of people are doing just recaps. They tell you what happened, right? But we really saw this as criticism, you know, as like real reflection and engagement with the material. Um, so how many years did you spend covering Lost? Well, I guess from from the fourth season to the sixth, so that was three three years, and then kind of doing some reflective stuff right. along the way, right? And then a few things here and there afterward, but not a whole lot really since it went off the air in two thousand ten. Until now, until now, <laughs> until now, which is why I'm bringing this up as a case study because uh, Noel and Emily St. James, um, who was another uh, a person who wrote for the AV Club under the name Todd Vanderwerf at the time, um, covered. Uh, a lot uh, a lot of television together and are writing a book together about Lost. And that book is going to be published by... Uh, Abrams. Abrams. Um, and it's coming out next, next fall. Yeah. Yeah, for the 20th anniversary of the first episode. Yes. And so the, um, the uh, manuscript just got turned in, or yes. the partial manuscript. So we want to kind of go into Lost and how you kind of cover that on a week-to-week basis what you tried to do with those reviews as a way of saying like, well, what does it mean to try and find meaning in popular culture? Again, like Noel said, something I talk with students all the time. Beyond, I, it was good. I liked it. I liked it when that happened. I didn't like when that happened, right? Beyond that, like, what do you try to do to make that happen? Well, um, first off, I want to go back real quick to talk about the idea of the recap, which is to just, you know, recap has got the reputation as being just explaining note for note what the plot summary was. It's not criticism. That said, there is something to actually telling people what you saw. I think that's the first fundamental job of any critic um, is because you, you can't be on the same page and have a conversation with somebody unless you explain to them, this is what I just saw. And people might tell you in, re in reaction, huh, that's not what I saw. You know, that's not what I understood it to be. Um, so you, being able to express that, I think, is part of it and do it in an entertaining way. Um, but then also at that point, it, it, you, you do get a little bit of kind of the nuts and bolts criticism of, you know, how is this performance? How is the plot going? But for a show like Lost, um, which hopefully I don't have to explain the TV show. I will be here Does everyone know hours. what Lost is? <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler. Yes. Uh, but it, generally, generally speaking, it was a show with a lot of mysteries. And so people really wanted to talk about their theories. Um, they wanted to, um, you know, kind of find the deeper meanings relevant to this crowd. You know, the characters all had very uh, telling names, like this character is named John Locke. Um, you know, this character is named Hume, you know. Um, they, they, this was all very intentional to kind of, you know, get you thinking about larger philosophical ideas. And so what I tried to do is, and generally this is what I think a, a good 
critic tries to do um, is bring your own experience, both personal, but also, um, you know, people often say, well, what's the point of a critic? I mean, anybody can tell you their opinion. I would say the distinction is if you're a professional critic, if you do it a long time, is you've seen a lot more stuff. You have a lot more context for what's happening. Um, and so for me, it was like taking the history of television uh, and with Lost, Lost is a show that brought in multiple cultural references throughout its run. And so that's what I tried to unpack. You know, what is the meaning of the fact that one character is reading Watership Down? You know, there's a reason for that. Or what, what, what are all the Wizard of Oz references on the show? I mean, you know, all these kind of things that, um, so that's, that's sort of what I tried to do week to week. But it was tricky because when I was covering Lost at the time, it was literally sometimes I would watch the show and had to get a review up in about two hours. And then the following week, I would occasionally go back and kind of look back on what I did the previous week and think about it some more. But um, it's an instant reaction and also trying to provide some context and meaning. Yeah. So let's just talk about the quality issue for just a second, because you're talking about like as a critic, you can um, you can try to think about um, this in a more holistic way. You can try to like bring in context as how it relates to a whole tradition and history of things that have been on television mm. and are outside of television, right? And put it in that stream. And that's something I try to do as a teacher as well. But also people want to say, well, it's going off the rails or yeah. it, right? It's uh, like, I hated that whole last season with the like or whatever, right? You know, people will say, this is where it jumped the shark, but this is where it went wrong. <laughs> Um, and they want to do that also instantly sometimes, like, you know, I hate what they did to that character in this episode that just happened. Right. And we also are viewers and we have hopes and dreams for this show and the characters on the show. And sometimes they don't come true or sometimes we think, oh boy, this, this is going to, this may turn out to be a problem. I mean, how do you handle that? Yeah. I mean, this is, I think one of the bigger issues in cultural criticism these days is that everybody is a fan um, and everybody has different things they bring to it. And some fan communities actually are kind of have a hive mind about certain issues. Uh, I can see they're putting their hands, heads in their hands. I mean, we can- A little bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we can move beyond, you know, Lost in this case. You have lots of, you have people who have very strong opinions about which Star Wars movies are the best and why. <laughs> Um, and, and, it, and it goes beyond a, a question of, um, you know, personal taste. It becomes a matter of, of like deeply held belief. And not only is it important that these person express to you their belief about it, but they don't want you to hold the opposite belief, Ooh, right? So in the case of Lost, this has become kind of a big, you know, like there are a lot of people who did not like the way Lost ended. They didn't care for the final season. They didn't care for the finale. And almost instantly that sort of hive mind fan culture leapt up to immediately squash anybody who might say, well, wait a minute, there's something interesting going on here. Let me try and tell you what, no. We cannot, you know, it has to be has to be widely understood that certain things are good and certain things are bad, right? So we have to, as a as a geek community, have to all be in communion mm -hmm. on the idea that the Star Wars prequels are bad, that the Matrix sequels are bad, that the Lost Six season is bad, you know. And anybody who has an alternate point of view is a heretic. Um, that said, I kind of like being a heretic a little bit, you know. I, I kind of like trying to find something else in there that's not. Uh, I, I genuinely find, as a consumer of popular culture criticism, 
that I like it when someone can show me something that I didn't see about something I didn't like more so than if somebody takes something that I do like and says, this is garbage. And here's why I hate those pieces. I hate those. Like everybody is wrong about blank. If it, if it is something that people like and they're trying to tear it down, I don't see the point of it. I'd much rather somebody say this thing you didn't like has something of value in it. And I'm going to show you why. So I've been lucky enough to, I'm best known for writing about things where I didn't get a lot of that reaction. I'm best known for writing about Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul on the AV Club. And that was a, a, a love fest where everybody was like, isn't this amazing every week? And I was just, I just got to do that. And so that was fantastic for the most part. Um, where was I going to go with that? Um, oh, I, okay. Just by yourself. Just wanted no, to talk about you are. Just wanted to get that out there. So, um, no, I wanted to kind of bring this up kind of to the present. No, so you're working on this lost book. What has it been like revisiting that from the perspective of 10, 12, whatever years later? Like how, how are, what does the passage of time do to this reflection? Yeah, um, Emily, and I, Emily and I both have had this found this to be a very interesting experience because you know both of us wrote about the show when it was airing, both watched the show when it was airing, and so going back and rewatching some of those episodes that we have not seen, you know, since they originally aired. I mean, at the time, I think I tried to watch them two or three times, but it's been a long time since I revisited it, and you can see, you know, on a nuts and bolts level, things that just don't work, like ideas that don't pan out, or you know, the show lost famously. Um, did not know when it was going to be ending until about halfway halfway through the run. At the end of the halfway through the middle of the third season, they finally convinced ABC that this huge hit show on their network needed to have an end date, or it was going to get really, really bad, really, really quick. And so, as soon as ABC said, "Okay, you can you can have three more seasons and end it," then the storytelling change became quicker, more more focused. They were driving toward a goal as opposed to kind of stalling for time. Um, and so, rewatching those episodes now, you can see some things that are kind of good about these episodes that didn't have anywhere particular to go. There's something very television-like about that. You know, classic television didn't have serialized stories and end goals and points. It was just something that happened every week and you'd revisit the same characters and there was value to that. So we enjoyed looking at that. Um, but there are some things about loss that do not hold up as well. In fact, our, the whole nature of our book changed over the summer when um, a colleague of ours, Maureen Ryan, uh, published a book called Burn It Down, um, which is about um, the culture of harassment, racism, sexism, um, all these problems. Mo, Mo Ryan's been covering these issues for Hollywood Reporter and other places, Vanity Fair for a long time. And her book went through various productions and talked about what happened on set. And there was a whole chapter about Lost that essentially said, you know, it wasn't a problem of like rampant sexual harassment, but it was a problem of women feeling that they weren't respected um, as writers. A lot of the actors, like the um, um, Harold Perrineau, um, who is black, um, you know, some of the Korean actors on the show felt like their stories, their character stories, were not valued as much as the main character of the show, who was a white male um, and played by somebody who has been accused of sexual harassment. So, you know, those kind of issues kind of bubbled up in this book. So Emily and I had to stop our original plan, which was to do half reviews, half um, interviews with everybody and pull the interviews because we did not want to do an expose. We didn't want to do, we weren't, that wasn't our skill set. 
and we change it to being more an overall book about the show from essays. But we still have to keep these things in mind. We can't ignore them. And so that's not the entire book, but we certainly have to talk about the things it failed at when it comes to representation, um, you know, uh, the sort of attitudes that were prevalent in Hollywood at the time that we didn't even necessarily think about. But you look back at it now, and it is obvious. It is glaring that certain people get to be the star and certain people get to have maybe an episode once a season and, you know, don't get to have the hero's arc that everybody else has. So two things come from that that I want to kind of, like, um, mention. One is this idea of what is television. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we are talking about how to get meaning out of pop culture, well, like the meaning out of pop culture is so dependent on the medium through which it comes. I mean, comics are just a fantastic example, right? If you are not kind of aware of how the medium of comics is delivering a story or a medium to you, then you think about it as just, oh, I can just easily translate that comic into a movie. Mm -hmm. Easy, quick. Um, I can, I can, my television show, by the way, is really uh, an eight hour movie. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or a novel um, on TV. Or in in an amazing example that we were just talking about this week, um, the Baz Luhrmann film, Australia. Yeah. The Baz Luhrmann, we liked it, but hey, it was not commercially successful, has been remade into a mini series called... Far Away Downs. Far Away Downs. And in the press material for the, or the Netflix, like, you know, Hulu Hulu blurb for it, there is no mention of Baz Luhrmann or the film Australia. So it's just like this idea that everything can be constantly just turned into another thing, like leftovers just constantly being repurposed, right? And that ignores what the medium is. That ignores how the medium works. So both of us now write occasionally for our buddy, Miles McNutt, who uh, does a substack called Episodic Medium. Please go subscribe to this <laughs> substack. It is, the tagline for it is uh, reviewing television an episode at a time like it never went out of style or something <laughs> like that, right? Because now everything is like dumped all at once and, right, and we get um, reactions to the whole thing, et cetera, et cetera. So this belief that television is an episodic medium is that it comes, it comes to you in bits, in quanta, and you, you, that's the way you experience it, right? Um, so uh, I'm, I'm writing about, um, what am I writing about? The Gilded now? Age. The Gilded Age, uh, coming up like next week or whatever, whenever that starts. And you've written about what we do in the shadows, mm-hmm. right? So talk about geek cred right there. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> right? So that's one thing I wanted to mention, just that nature of like what the medium of television does that's different from the medium of a movie, that's different from the medium of comics. That's clearly different from the medium of music, mm-hmm. right? Even though we've turned music into television, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention was, I think both of us have a philosophy that uh, Noel expressed as like trying to understand what this thing is trying to do and how it works on us. And I think there's a, a fundamental attitude there of being a listener to a storyteller, like being like that's that's the first thing you do when you sit down and engage with a piece of pop culture is, um, is, is try to like actually listen to it as a, in a position of trust. Now, sometimes that trust is betrayed. I'm not, I'm not claiming that doesn't happen, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, trying to come at it from, um, you know, a, a, a hermeneutic of 
of, of trust rather than a hermeneutic of suspicion where everybody is ready to jump on Ryan Johnson for what he did wrong mm -hmm. in The Last Jedi, right? They're waiting, their knives are out. Right? Oh, I think. Oh, oh, yeah, I see what you did there. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I heard it while I heard it. Boom. If you could peel back the layers of the glass. Oh, oh, if only we could. <laughs> um, but, right, but, but like, I, I want to know what this, these creators want to say to me. Mm. And maybe I decide that they are wrong or I don't like it or that they, they messed it up or like it's fundamentally a mistake or flawed in some way, or that it just contains flaws. But I have to start with the listening. Yeah. And the flaws can be interesting too, right? Yeah. Like I was just saying with Lost, with, you know, those episodes that they had to stall for time, have some things that were interesting about them because of what they were doing. And sometimes the failings were interesting. Like looking back at those things I was talking about that are obviously wrong with the show now, they reflect an era. They reflect an attitude. And it's interesting to kind of engage with that. Um, I mean, I watch a lot of old movies and if you're gonna watch a lot of old movies, you have to have a pretty thick skin about, you know, uh, what kind of content, you know, is, is being presented to you. But the example I always give, um, and this may, I may lose all my credibility right here. Um, <laughs> when I read music, um, I tended to, I liked lots of different kinds of things. I'm, you know, I like lots of different genres of music and I have a kind of historical perspective from when I was a kid, I liked to listen to a lot of different things and to understand them. And the way I always explain it was, um, if I were listening to Journey, the rock band Journey, um, what I, I try to listen to it as though, how would this sound if I were a fan of Journey? You understand what I'm saying? So it's huh. like, um, hear it with those ears. Like, and, or pick anybody. You know, what if I liked, um, you know, uh, uh, Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters. How would it sound to me? Yeah. You know, and what, what, what so, so what it, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean I end up Random liking everything, but it does mean that I at least try to understand what the appeal is and understanding the appeal of something can open it up for you a little bit. Sometimes it does, sometimes it makes it so that you do actually, I find frequently with music, when I watch a live performance on television, mm. some band that I did not get at all. You know, suddenly I'm like, oh, okay, now I understand. There's a whole visual component. There's the energy. The crowd is there. I watch the Austin City Limits uh, episode from last year um, with Olivia Rodrigo performing. And I, it was just on like last week or so when I watched it again. Um, and it's amazing. There's these teenage girls that are like losing it watching Olivia Rodrigo. And it's like, I get it. I understand. I get the appeal of this. It's really good. Um, so, yeah. So one more thing I want to throw out on the table before I throw it over to you guys. Um, is something we talk about all the time as well. And you kind of talk about, uh, you kind of alluded to this. Um, I always tell students, if you want to understand what's going on in, the cult, in a culture at a, any particular time, don't look at the Oscar bait. Don't look mm. at the prestige television, mostly. Um, look at the things that are ephemeral. Look at the things that are designed to be uh, watched and forgotten. And never, right? Never yeah. thought of again. They are not built to last. Look at the things that are not built to last. Because in the things that are built to last, we put all of our ideals and the best versions of ourselves and our, our deepest, most penetrating critiques of everything. Like Instagram. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And in the, things, in the things that are ephemeral, like for me, this is reality television, right? The things that like, like we're big fans of Survivor and, and Amazing Race and things like that. And, and, when, and, and we're deep critics of them too. Like whatever Jeff Probst thinks is happening in the culture, I think is fascinating. And not because I agree with it, 
because, but because he's so deeply invested in this idea that there's heroes and there's hustlers and there's, what was the third one? Uh, or was it just two? Was it heroes <laughs> versus hustlers? At, because healers, I think healers. Healers, thank you. Because then you get people coming on the confessional saying, well, as a hustler <laughs> or as Gen X, I have like, you know, the people sort of are encouraged to define themselves in these ways. And I, I think that's, that's endlessly fascinating, right? So part of the meaning that I draw from this stuff is not the stuff that I sort of expect to be like good enough to revisit in 20 years, but, and maybe loss was that way too. I don't know. But like, you know, um, whatever is happening right now that people largely are letting slide by because it reinforces some view of the world or because they don't have the vocabulary to kind of reflect on it. That's what I want to dig into and reflect on. You ever thought about that? No, I think you said it just one. Okay. <laughs> All right, Perfect. great. Well, then I'm going to throw it over to the yeah, podcasters. Yeah, good job. I Thanks, hope guys. We got a lot to talk about. We do, we do. Uh, let's unpack that a little bit. Um, again, Will Rose, and I, my podcast, I'm a part of one of the hosts uh, of Systematic Geekology, and that's kind of the things we do. We explore those things we geek out on. Everybody geeks out on something, and uh, the deeper questions of theology and philosophy. I'm also partnering with this guy, Every now and then, what's your podcast, Ryan? I'm Ryan Doe's. I am, uh, I guess, the creator. I creator yeah. and and uh, canonical host. IP. <laughs> I started a podcast about uh, Marvel's Thor in my garage, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was a way to keep me entertained. Is Thor in your garage? What is Thor in, in, in this podcast? Is he in your? I freaking wish. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, then <clears throat> met Will through Trip, and we've. I mean, we've talked about. I feel like just about. Everything in in that one little vein of comics. So that's why Noel talking about comics gets me so hyped and excited. Let's talk about comics. And what's the next? And what's the next we could project? be here the rest of the week. <laughs> I know. How much time that. I got? <laughs> Lunch is that thing. Um, no, I'm interested because the reason we start here, how to read pop culture, some of the things you talk about um, and the things we get frustrated in churches in the terms of like the toxic fandom and who owns the IP and what's going on with the canon and who's telling the story and the narrative and you're not telling the story that I wish you were saying or what you're saying is a perversion of what's going on. So how do I detach or deconstruct from that and then move on? I'm going to change churches and fandoms. I'm moving down the road. <laughs> um, those things that are happening in churches also happen in geek uh, toxic fandom when it comes to like Star Wars fans and Tolkien fans. And I'm a big part of the Comic-Con community. And a lot of those spaces that are unchurched, they're like, uh, and rightfully so, they've been burned or hurt or don't want any part of that. Uh, but the same things and questions that are being asked and wrestled with in the Comic-Con community and working out your identity or your toxic fan of, I can't believe you treated Luke Skywalker that way. Um, the same thing is What are you referring to? Um, <laughs> the knives are out, man. The knives are out. Uh, no, but like, but there's a legitimate, like you said, people looking at through other eyes and how can we have a a healthy conversation uh, to help me see this narrative or story they told uh, from a different perspective to help me see what they're trying to say and not just um, checking off the boxes in my headcanon for that. So in terms of like Lost, I know Lost was a game changer. How many here have seen Lost all the way through? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, that's pretty good. And it, it's out there. I showed my children like when they got to high school and I was like, hey, this is a big part of it. Let's show it. They loved it. I just got a message from like um, my my daughter who's in college and she goes, we're currently, I'm showing all my roommates lost. And, and I'm like, it's the super old TV you, show. I'm so proud of you. I'm not, I don't, she didn't say they're taking them to church. She's like, whatever, but you're showing them lost. I'm so proud of you. Um, 
but but yeah, so Lost in his this is before streaming, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a writer strike that happened in the middle of of them trying. But there's also the emergence of the internet and message boards mm-hmm. and theories, and you had to wait for a week. So it's interesting. These streaming uh, Disney Plus others are are not just dumping the Netflix style of dumping it all there, and you got to binge it in two days, or you're going to have spoilers um, uh, if you look at the internet. But but they're now starting to go back to this one episode a week, knowing that that builds up. Um, conversation mm-hmm. and those kinds. So how would you see, I guess, what happened with Loss back in 2008 with the other writer strike and then what's happening now with the writer strike we're just coming out of and how we're consuming our fandom and, and TV shows and movies when it comes to that? Is there a comparison? Do you see what's going on? Are we just rep- history repeating itself <laughs> or what, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, the, the, the writer strike had a, you know, when you think about what people want television to be, especially, you know, geek-friendly television, which is that they want to think about a creator um, who sat down at the beginning and planned out an entire 120-episode television show and knew everything was going to happen, knew exactly (laughs) where it was going to end. They had all these, everything they throw in there, if there happens to be a polar bear, there's a point to the polar bear. Just wait. (laughs) We're getting to the polar bear. Um, And then when it comes to to Lost, you know, they had situations happen where a cast member suddenly decided, I don't want to be on the show anymore. And so a character, the character Mr. Echo on the show, the actor wanted to leave and they killed him off in season three. That was not the original plan. Uh, they had other characters they introduced, and they were like, yeah, the actor playing this character is very interesting. So suddenly, Desmond Hume becomes a bigger character than he was. Ben Linus becomes the main villain of the show. That was not the original or plan. Or hits puberty and grows in a t- yes. three feet from like this. <laughs> a character who is still supposed to be 10 years old two years later on the show because yeah. it's only been two months on the island. They have to get rid of him because, yeah. you know, he's going to be a teenager, which is which leads to this larger problem I talked about where Harold Perrineau's character, who was Walt, played Walt's father, is also written out of the show and feels like he didn't get to be the hero that everybody did. So, you know, it happens. Um, but with the writer's strike, that was a case where they had a whole plan in place for that season that had to get scrapped and it had to be compressed. I had to do all kinds of things because of the, because of the strike. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious, I, I, you know, I, what, what do you see happening now with the writer strike that that you think was reflected in 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 that time, like, uh, so I can well, speak I, to it. it. It paused the show. It was on a. It was on a like. It was very popular. People were in the message wars with theories, and then it came to a screeching halt. Mm-hmm. And then they broke up the seasons. Didn't they do like we're going to do eight episodes here? Then we're going to do like the final four here. And yeah. so how we watch or consume TV became compartmentalized. And then I don't know if they, in terms of their plans, they had time to think about their plans and those kinds of things. And I think what's fascinating about this writer's strike um, with the emergence of, of AI and uh, equity um, in terms of economics when it comes to the writers and credit. And then what we're talking about in theological spaces and church spaces is who owns the canon, who owns the narrative, who owns the IP? How are we all creators of this story together rather than just the CEO who's looking to make money or or whatever? How is it distributed among others? So Lost, I mean, I just, I was fascinated about what's happening now. And then I think back of when I was like all in with Lost and the strike. I was, oh, I have to wait because yeah. of this and what's going to happen? How is this going to hurt or, or help my show? And then here we are now going, I can't wait to see what they do with Star Wars or the movies they have planned out. Here comes Rider Strike. I don't have to wait five more years. Are they going to re- yeah. reboot everything? So yeah, those kinds of things are happening with the narratives and fandoms that I love. It's interesting because, you know, the, the, I think the thing that is kind of interesting is um, how do fans feel about the writer Strike? Like mm-hmm. a lot of people are upset 
right? Because like now it's going to be an extra six months before the new season of Andor comes out or whatever, mm-hmm. because it has mm-hmm. not, they have to, had to pause production on it or um, the second season of the, the Lord of the Rings show. Um, you know, it also, I think got Rings started and had this yeah. Rings of Power had to start and stop. Um, so are you, are you supportive of the people that you love creating your stuff, getting a fair deal? Or do you care more about your stories? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of speaks to what we were talking about before too. Who do you care more about here? The storyteller mm. or the story? And do you trust the storyteller or do you think that, or do you think that the story is above the storyteller to the point where if they're not being proper stewards of it, you have a, not just a, a right, but an obligation to speak up and say, Hey, wait a minute. You know, this is wrong. Yeah, I just want to speak to that because part, you know, part, sometimes I describe this attitude of sort of like listening to a narrative or sitting down and waiting, waiting to, to form an opinion until I'm, until I, I have emerged from that. Sometimes I describe that as submitting, submitting to, Mm. right, submitting to the, the, the (laughs) artifact that's in front of me, like, you know, committing to seeing it all the way through. And in some sense, that sounds to some of my students like I turned my brain off or something. Um, but in another sense, it's exactly what I want my students to do when they like encounter a text and they're like, boy, um, this author turned me off from word one. And now I have to get through this thing, but I'm going to get through angry, angry at every moment, right? <laughs> angry read. Angry, yeah, angry read. read, exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, if you just, what my mentor Norb Shedler used to always say, uh, hear the person all the way through, hear them all the way into speech, allow that speech act to be to become complete and then respond. Right. I, I think we, I think it's just fundamentally different the way yeah. we, now it's, it's hard to do. I, I certainly don't succeed all the time. I wanted to make one other point about what you were saying about constraints. Okay. So every work of pop culture that we are dealing with, every work of art that we deal with is a, uh, the result of a tension between um, creativity and constraint, right? And constraint is, I believe constraints can do amazing things for people. Constraints that they put on themselves, like I think we were kind of early big fans of back in the day, the kind of Dogma 95 films, if you know the Lars von Trier films and Venter, Thomas Venterberg and people like that who said, okay, we're not gonna do uh, music. We're not gonna do scoring. We're going to use only handheld camera. We're going to whatever else they did, right? All the other things they did. Uh, no voiceovers, right? Um, like the, the voluntary constraints as kind of a manifesto. But constraints like a writer's strike, constraints mm-hmm. that you don't voluntarily, they also enable amazing creativity. And when we, yeah. when we treat it as, oh, I didn't get the perfect thing that they wanted to make because this thing happened... Um, then we ignore the thing we actually got, which can be amazing in its own way as a response mm-hmm. to the thing. And the other thing I wanted to say was about mid-season finales. Everything has a mid-season finale now. <laughs> yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about the split season, right? So yep. people are like, even shows that go pick up the next week, a sitcom now, they will be right. And we love sitcoms. We can talk about sitcoms. We love sitcoms. Um, but a sitcom will say, tune in for the mid-season finale of Young Sheldon. Right? We love Young Sheldon. We are also very old. Ryan. So I, I'm, I'm fascinated by every word of this, but there's something, there's some, Donnie, you said um, 
the the idea of hearing people all the way out and receiving a story. So I, like most people on the internet, and you know, every guy that looks like me has a podcast talking about something. <laughs> um, there, so so much of the narrative and the dialogue I hear is, I've well, I've got to watch blank to respond, to respond, to respond, to respond. No one's like dying to hear most of those responses, <laughs> but but like. Think of a like a um, a credible news site and you know like a like a Screen Rant or a ComicBook.com or an IGN. They they always have these very responsive like so you know so and so ruining Star Wars, <laughs> and it's always associated to a feeling. <laughs> how do I expo- how do I say this effectively? Um, it's associated with a feeling I had about that franchise. Mm-hmm when I actually took the time to receive the story. Uh-huh, right. yeah, yeah. Instead of now, I'm, I'm hyper fixated on like the, you know, the latest, the latest episode of blank was dog shit because of blank. But I haven't heard the whole story yet. Mm-hmm. I say all that to ask the question, where does that come from? <laughs> okay, I have a thought about this. Okay. I know you have so a thought good. about okay. it. Great question. Um, just the other day, I was talking to students about, um, I asked students about something that was precious to them that took them back to a, a time when they felt like everything was okay and they still revisit that thing in order to recapture that feeling, right? And and they said, oh, like, uh, I'm going to go see the Taylor Swift eras movie and like that, you know, the some of the music there like takes me back to a time when like I was emerging and I knew who I was and everything was all right and et cetera, et cetera. And I said, okay, well, <laughs> my husband's a Neil Young fan. Mm-hmm. And like, you, you know, one of the things you do is like, he keeps putting out, you know, versions of the same material, little yeah. extra stuff in a yeah. different way, right? But one of the things that can happen when a person is no longer actively making music is that you can trap them in amber. They, they, they are all, yeah, yeah, they, they yeah, are already yeah. all that they will ever be. Yeah. And therefore, right? But when a person is living and continuing to work, then you see people saying, well, why wasn't your album like the one I liked? Why don't you just continue to do that? <laughs> Why do you have to do something new? I just think about like the Bell and Sebastian album I love, which was like them breaking out of their kind of acoustic-y thing and, and doing something disco, with horns yeah. or whatever and disco. And I was like, this is amazing. And other people are going, that's not Bell and Sebastian. They've yeah. sold it. Like it's all messed up now, right? Yeah. But it's about it being a living story okay. with living people. And that's hard for us because <laughs> Nostalgia we- Nostalgia is a hell of a drug. Right? <laughs> we want to just trap it and keep it, right? And now it's ours. But I'll let, let you mention it. No, I think you said it just right. I mean, you take like directors people love, for example. Like there's never going to be any more Stanley Kubrick films. So if you become a Stanley Kubrick film uh, fan today, if you've never, if you weren't, you didn't, you know, you're brand, say you're 20 years old. So you've, you, he's been dead for as long as you've been alive. And you start watching Stanley Kubrick films. Well, then the entire body of work for Stanley Kubrick is open to you. Right, and you can encounter and experience it that that same way. If you are a fan, uh, on the other hand, of say like Martin Scorsese, he's still making movies. 
And so you might say, well, you know, this movie isn't, you know, The Irishman oh, or man, George people, the Flower Moon or People whatever. who greeted every new Martin Scorsese, a, a miracle that we have a new Martin Scorsese movie. And they're like, well, you know, it's not as good <laughs> as, you know, whatever. It's three and a half hours. I don't know. <laughs> isn't he doing a Marvel movie soon? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, so that's, yeah, that's, so yeah, that's, that's what I would say is that when, you know, something that is newly created versus something like when you experience Star Wars for the first time. Um, you know, it was nothing. I mean, even if you were born uh, later in life, you still might experience that, that, that the original trilogy, which is the middle three, um, as its own thing. And it's new yeah. to you and it's exciting and fresh. Um, but anything new that comes after that, you're going to compare it to that first experience you had, which is a sort, of, sort of in, in you know, self-contained and already existed. So, Real fast. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. And, and, and kind of juxtaposing that with what happens in our you know, faith communities of faith and churches nostalgia like christmas is probably a bad time to say i'm gonna bring out all new hymns for uh for christmas eve right um but so how do i like yeah like i want to introduce new liturgies and hymns and and who's this living story that's uh, shaping us and transforming us and shaping us who we are along with we want to look back and back in the 80s those were the good old days and like were they you know and so um how do we mix and and or have that balance of the good and dark and light side of the nostalgia and things we love, but also drawing us forward to something different. And I think fandoms are are wrestling with that too, along with thriving communities of faith uh, with that yeah. too. That's How do we do nostalgia <laughs> and also do something new and, and vibrant uh, to draw people forward? You know, I think about, uh, I mentioned being a PK, um, you know, but my dad, before he had his own parish, was kind of a uh, would you know tr one of those people who would travel from churches to churches to kind of fill in you know on Sundays, um, and I remember being with him on one of those occasions, and and they had re that church had recently changed uh, a few things in the liturgy you know before my dad got there, um, and so I, I sat in on a kind of fellowship hour after church, and they were talking about the fact that they had changed the they went to a different wording of say the Nicene Creed or one of the one of the things that's a regular deal and it has multiple versions you can use and they picked a different version and somebody just stubbornly said well I'm just gonna say the original one you know, <laughs> under my breath I mean it's not quite the same thing but, you, but it is kind of the same thing yeah. right it's like you don't want to you know you have the sense of this is how it's supposed to be um, and if whatever the change may be and the change can be some sort of element of progressivism that you weren't expecting, or it can be, um, or something as simple as a word change in, a, in the creed, you know? <laughs> we changed the Lord's Prayer from like the uh, King's James English to like language we use in common day. You would have thought like George Lucas changed Han Solo shooting first. What? You changed it to the original? I was like, no, Jesus did not speak in King James English and these and that. Like, let's go back. Like, how does, how does that, yeah, that's the balance. And the yeah. same thing is happening in our fandom, in our, in those stories that we concern, consume and shape our lives yeah. with those things. So sitting in there this morning, um, right behind me, maybe I didn't turn around to see who it was. Maybe you're in this room, but right behind me, people were talking about, you know, finding something in the Bible that they were like, oh man, I'm going to have to back up and rethink everything. Cause this thing is in my Bible alongside this thing that I, yeah. I've always liked, but this thing's also there. And, you know, Tom kind of talked about that as well. And the person sitting next to that person said, you know, the Bible's a library. And that's an analogy, I was like, pricked up my ears because that's an analogy I use all the time to students, right? Mm. Rather than being a text, a complete text that's given to us, it is a library of many people's responses, sometimes to each other, right? Um, you know, um, like a prophet, the prophet Hosea saying, you know, the, the, the Deuteronomist is wrong, he's wrong. 
right? Mm. And angrily confronting that, or Jesus, you know, to angrily confronting things that he thinks are wrong, um, you know, or at least need to be transformed, right? So that maybe that's our problem with some of these fandoms as well, that we see them as all one big long text and we want to cut the parts out Amen. that we would not like to be in that text rather than as um, a library, the library of all the Star Wars stories, the library is, of, yeah, right? 100%. You know, I don't know. All yeah. the, like the comic book thing is, is especially pertinent to that because the big, because your Marvels and your DCs have explicitly wrestled with whether they are going to have continuity and whether they are going to like, you know, whether they're going to be able to change the focus of characters, whether they're going to change their personalities and change what they care about um, and all those other things because it literally is a library and spans over a century or whatever it is, right? And you do not have, so what does it mean as a creator to come in and contribute to that library? So I, there's, there's so many things I want to <laughs> pick up on. Um, with having, like, a, let's pick something, you know, innocuous, like a controversy in Star Wars. You know, you have, like, you have someone like George Lucas who is, I mean, the originator. He is the, the foundation upon which... The creator. You know, a galaxy you know, far, far away was built. And then he departs and you have kind of a, a creative mishmash of people. And someone like a Dave Filoni comes along and they're like... Woo! <laughs> there we go. It is awesome. I didn't I think agree. I'd get to say this this weekend, but I see that hand. Like, <laughs> um, but, but someone like that, some like uh, a pseudo chosen one, comes along and he's supposed to make it all better. You know, he's supposed to make at least make sense to a point or remind us of that feeling that we once had. That feels equally dangerous. Yeah. Because you're setting up a creative. And a brilliant creative. I think I love Dave Filoni's stuff. But setting him up for what happens when the community that loves me, you know, to borrow the analogy of Jesus, the people <laughs> that followed him around, oh, hey, feeding people, healing people, fantastic. Like that one thing, the tipping point, this, you know, where it's like we went from loving you this day so we are going to freaking crucify you this day. Palm Sunday. Someone, <laughs> mm. like, someone like a Filoni or what we're seeing over in DC right now with James Gunn of like, he's going to make it all make sense. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen one James Gunn DC movie like <laughs> in his new universe. I don't, I don't even know what qualifies at this point <laughs> for that. When figureheads like that come into fandoms, is it almost an unobtainable role within a fandom to, to uni, unify it's us? I don't know. unenviable yeah. for sure. It, right. I think, yeah. I think it depends upon, you know, I mean, I think you also can have the problem of like, a perfect example of this is like Zack Snyder, right? Like there are people in the DC, DC fans who yeah. think Zack Snyder had everything exactly right. And anything that they have done, you know, replacing him with Joss Whedon or maybe now with James Gunn, that they're still going to hold firm to, they think that the Zack Snyder version of this was the correct version of it. They are fanatical about it. And much like I talked about before, they will <laughs> pop into any public space any. to shut down anybody who has anything negative to say. I just realized this is their version of the Bible is inerrant in the, in the original manuscripts. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right? Yeah, in the yeah. original manuscripts, which we don't have, but we can believe <laughs> exists. Okay. Yeah. 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 But so I the director's so cut. Analogous. Yeah. 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 The director's but, cut. But I, but I agree. I definitely think that, you know, if, if it comes down to, well, I'm just giving the fans what they want, um, you know, that 
gets boring after a while, right? I mean, you, you need you need new characters, you need mm-hmm. new stories, you need new ideas. Do we want fan service or fresh stories? And can we possibly have both? Yeah, that's the tricky thing. Okay. Oh, I, okay. I think we can. Okay. And I, I think Andor's a great example. Yeah, or The here. Mandalorian. I think is a great or example. The Mandalorian I, is a great example. Because when we watched The Mandalorian and then we went and watched Andor, one of the things I turned to you and said was, this feels, that this person understands what Star Wars actually yeah. is. Yeah. It understands the... Not just the uh, aesthetic, the right word. Not just the visual aesthetic, but like the way the 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 relationships characters have to their environment, to each other, to the political system above them, and the kinds of stories that are enabled by focusing on those characters. And you see so much media that's like, I know what the fans want. They want more. I don't can't think of a good example now. <laughs> they want right. They want more. Wait, of that. now there's too everybody, many lightsabers. Everybody <laughs> loves that. And then you see somebody step back from that and say, Well, no, it's um, it's a uh, it's a it's a world that you live in, and the feeling of that world is not the furniture of that world, mm. right? So that's my reaction to that. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think, um, uh, shameless plug, tomorrow at 10.45 in this room, more Star Wars talk. <laughs> um, but, but That's I think, really the main talk of the right. whole weekend. But, but you talk about Filoni, one of the things that people will say to give him more geek cred or more trust is that he sat at the, the feet of George Lucas. Yeah. He you was know, a disciple. He was a disciple that he's passed That's why the Gospel of Mark is accurate. Because <laughs> Mark <laughs> just wrote down what Peter said. Yeah. And Q. Wait, we'll go to that. Nope. But um, no. But I think that part of that building up, who are you going to trust that's telling the story? Who, who are you going to trust to tell a story? How do they break your trust? How do they break your heart? How do they build up your trust again once you've been hurt? You know, all that I think is so fascinating and analogous in terms of the, the phantom and with what we're doing in our in our faith communities as well. They're, they're so analogous and they're so there. So that's why I think Geek Stage and, and starting with pop culture and how to read pop culture um, is pretty important in, ter- in terms of how we do we really, faith together. We haven't really answered the question. <laughs> no, 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 but you have. I think how do I absolutely we? have. How do we read pop culture? With great um, difficulty. With great difficulty. In community. Yeah. And understand it's a library. Um, another question? Well, it, I, more of this, how, how do we do it with great, with great difficulty? Just, I mean, yes, that feels simple, but it's also incredibly complex. That pop, like nerd geek culture has kind of become pop culture to a certain extent and, you know look at the the top grossing movies of the last decade plus mm-hmm. they're probably going to have a cape or a mask or something in them on the hero or, or there's going to be lasers there's going to be lightsabers that like people clearly have an appetite for this for this medium but with nerd culture us going from the back corner of the room now to the stage has that maybe and I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong here, and enabled a fan base to be like, we're not, we're no longer the minority. So we get to kind of own all of it now. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I, let's, let's have a fun analogy here. Um, I would just put it in the same context as like, you know, people who, modern day Christians who, who um, like to see everything as being a persecution. Right? Ah. Um, mm. Because, because that's, mm. what we, that's kind mm. of what we see with a lot of these communities. Like as soon as like, Martin Scorsese, for example, says something like, well, I don't really watch the Marvel movies because they're just like theme park rides. 
oh my God, you know, <laughs> like these people who have, who have won, you've won yeah, this we, time. We you won. Yeah. You have to come back and, t- and tackle this poor old man who was making, <laughs> making masterful arts um, because he doesn't want to see your little movie. It's okay. You don't have, you don't, not, not everybody has to see everything. It's okay. Yeah. yeah. So um, um, that is the danger to me more I, is that people mm. still, this is part of our I, I, geek identity going back from the beginning, right? Like, you know, I was a huge comic book fan before any of this stuff became very, very popular. Um, and so I think we still kind of carry that with us to a little bit that we're a little bit of a, you know, a little standoffish about uh, these things that we like, um, even though they've become like the most popular things, you know, in the world. Yeah. And because you were a fan before it was a movie, yeah. you're a you're a real fan. <laughs> That's right. Like, it, the... Um, mm. The idea of like, it's funny how we, uh, some of us spent time before there were movies, before we were breaking box office, you know, whatevers. And it's like, no, I was, I was ridiculed for this. I was bullied for this. I was the persecuted minority, but now we've become part of such a large quantity of popular culture. And it's like, we kind of become, we become the bully. And it, it reminds me of a, of a passage from a, a deeply held uh, piece of media where it's like, we either live long enough mm-hmm. to see ourselves become the villain yeah. or we die the hero. And I, I feel like there's a lot of truth in that where it's like, I remember getting bullied for thinking Darth Maul was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I, I remember watching that trailer and being like, what is this? <laughs> I have to see this now. My mom being like, Guy looks like Satan. And I'm like, we're not going <laughs> sneaking into Phantom Menace. I remember, like, that was my. That's a good story. But, the, but then other people being like, well, that's not really Star Wars. It's like that, that gatekeeping mm-hmm. exists. I, I'm not included in the theological conversations a lot, but like, there's got to be gatekeeping there. Gatekeeping uh, just in. Just a little. Yeah. Just, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just a little. Okay. Yeah. Pastor. And I think that's a really interesting thing to bring up just about this event. There's people here who are PhDs and seminary students and I don't know, they have postdocs in theology. What, you know, there's people who are deeply enmeshed in the scholarship of it and we get to throw around all the fancy names and prove that we've read all the stuff. Mm. Um, and what, I, what encourages me so much about this event on the Discord is there's people confessing, I really don't know any of that stuff. Is there a place for me here? And everybody's going, yes, yes, right? Um, and I have to take this into my current biggest fandom is the speedrunning community. I'm not a speedrunner at all. I've never speedrun a thing, single thing in my life. <laughs> but I find the people involved in that community extremely non-gatekeepy. I'm sure there are corners but everyone wants everyone else to come in and give this thing a try and get started. And what worries me about the church is the same thing as what worries you about the fandom is that I have students who increasingly like grow up without any knowledge of, of religion. They're, you know, they grow up as one of the nuns, right? The N-O-N-E-S, uh, no, nothing in particular, like their family is that way. Yeah. And if they, but, and then they feel it is impossible to know anything about it. It is impossible, it is so big, and they feel like such an idiot for not already knowing. Mm -hmm. And we make them feel that way. And, right? And that question of, um, like, you know, 
how much perseverance do you have to have to push past that and say, well, you know, I really don't know. I've never read the Bible. I don't even know what it says. I don't know how they act in church. I don't know what anything you guys are doing means. Um, I'm, I'm interested. I would really like to get into it, but the barrier to entry is so high. So the Commonwealth community has like um, like jumping in points. Mm-hmm. Like they'll yeah. reboot a whole, like Superman's been around for 70 years and a thousand issues, but then they'll reboot and do a new number one at the top. And that's supposed to invite you in. A new story has started. And I joke in our podcast. They keep the legacy numbers, numbers don't they? They keep they will. legacy numbers. I love my legacy numbers. Thor, 738. Yeah. Why does it say number one up there? It's not number one. It's 738. But like hopefully our community of faiths can um, – also do entry points. How do you jump on? Disney Plus has done like, all right, you haven't watched. Uh, in order to watch Ahsoka, you don't have to watch all Clone Wars. Here are the 10 top episodes to know all you need to know about Ahsoka leading into. Um, my wife watched that show with me, and and I was like, you probably don't need to watch, but maybe hope they'll tell a story. But she's watching, and she's like, pause it. Pause. Anakin had a Padawan? Yeah. <laughs> it's a complicated relationship. Go. And then uh, like 30 minutes later, pause it. Okay, like, and, and, then we, and then a little bit later on, they a- actually asked Sabine, like, so what's going on? And she was like, it's complicated. I was like, I said that earlier. Yeah. Um, but, like, how do we have entry points or jumping on points? And I think the comic book community, others, was like, here's a way you can come in and understand. Maybe you don't need all this backstory, but if you want to go deeper, here's this. One of the things we do at Systematic Ecology is that we do recommendations at the end of the podcast to say, we want to recommend something. Because I feel like I have my finger on the pulse of pop culture, what's going on geek culture. But... I know nothing about like the gaming world or, or, or anime or something like that. But we have big fans who are hosts on our show who say, yeah, I recommend this. If you want to start here, go here. If you love One Piece, you know, maybe you watch Netflix first or not. You give me the <laughs> DJ's going to give me like the top four <laughs> episodes that I need to get into it. Um, but yeah, how do you shepherd or do be pastoral to those to say like, here, come in and let me help you understand and consume this story. And what's funny, what's funny for me is that as somebody who was a, you know, grew up watching television, you know, like I was a latchkey kid. So just basically TV on, on constantly when I was young, um, like I, you know, and, and TV was different, obviously in the seventies, eighties, whatever, but even still, I'm still baffled when people say, um, oh, here's this new show. Uh, it's really, really good. But you, you know, you have to go back and watch from the beginning. The first eight episodes are terrible, but by episode nine, it starts to get good. And I'm like, I'll watch episode nine. I mean, <laughs> it's television. I can figure it out. Like, it's television. <laughs> like, I, like something like Ahsoka, for example. I have not watched all those Clone Wars things, but right. I just dove right in, and I'm enjoying it so far because it's a Star Wars story. I, I can figure out a Star Wars story. I don't know who everybody is, but they're going to give me information enough to know. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Wikipedia exists, but anyway. Um, <laughs> so, I don't know. I, you have to be careful with Wikipedia because it'll spoil things you might not want to know. But but yeah, I, I, my attitude has always been that everything should be approachable, right? Accessible. Yeah, but we, we, we uh, have arguments about this with our fellow <laughs> critics. Yeah. Um, we have some fellow critic friends who are pretty adamant that, like, you, like if, if somebody told you in season three that, oh, this thing's gotten really good, you can't just start watching. You have to, like, I don't know why. I don't quite understand why. But the... In medias race is is not just a narrative device. Y'all know what in medias race is, right? <laughs> Starting in the middle of things, oh. right? The way uh, Homer starts the Odyssey with you know Ulysses on a beach, like you know just crying, and how did he get there? And we're gonna find out, right? 
Actually, all shows do this now, right? Like Oceanic One 815 year earlier, scattered around. Right? Yeah, exactly. Right? In Medias Race, right? Yeah. So it's, it's a narrative device. New hope. And we are so used to it because we know, oh, somebody's going to go back and fill in those details for me. But in, Medi in Medias Race is an existential reality. We all arrive in the middle of a conversation that's already started. Mm. And we listen for a bit, I hope, right? We listen for a bit and we... We make our contributions and then we leave before the party's over. Like that's just, that's the nature of reality. And the thing about narratives is it can kind of like abstract from that and give you something that's finished maybe, but not really because my favorite narrative and Noel read this recently. And so, right, my favorite narrative that I have lived my life by is The Deed of Paxinarian. I started reading by Elizabeth, because you suggested it. I, yeah. I, I know. so good. By Elizabeth Moon. <laughs> yep. uh, it is a fantasy trilogy um, that so I reread over and over and over again. And that is not a finished, I mean, actually there's a second trilogy, but it, it, the important thing is it's not even a finished text because I'm living it out, right? I'm living according to that and that's becoming a fact in the world, right? And so my online handle is Paxinarian. You can find me as Paxinarian everywhere, all over the internet. And that word becomes a part of other people's conversations. They call me that. And to, they don't know who that is, but that, right? That's a, that's, it's, that reality is not something that's ever going to be finished, right? Even though the books are finished. You call that immediate race? Is that how you say that? In medias race. Immediate race. Because if you meet me, you've never met me before, you meet me out there having a beer, you meet me already in my story. That's the thing yeah. happening. Yeah. And so where's the background? What made Will who he is today, but then there, my story isn't over yet, at least I hope. And so, um, yeah, we all meet people where they are and, and that good, good stuff. Now, does Disney Plus have like four essential Will Rose episodes <laughs> to hit? Before one we... day they will. <laughs> I, I, speaking of books, I had one quick, easy softball question. Um, are books better than the movies? <laughs> is, and does it matter? Like, the compare like comparing a different form of media to another form of media. Why do we get so freaking hung up on that? Okay, we have many thoughts about this. We've had okay. many conversations about it. I certainly have students who think they are tell like they will go. Of course, I know I haven't read the book. I'm sure it's better or whatever. They think I they think they know where I stand about this. Um, it 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 depends on what people do with the story. So The Godfather is presumably not a very good book. I've never read it. I've read it. But I don't, fine. you read it? Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. It's okay. But The Godfather <laughs> is a great movie. I was not allowed to see R-rated movies. Yeah. So I read the book version of all these. So I work. read The Godfather before I saw the movie because I couldn't see the movie. And then we were, we were talking recently about um, the novelizations of, of certain science fiction things or whatever in the 70s and 80s were often by extremely good writers. And so the novel, like Alan Dean Foster wrote a bunch of novelizations of Star Trek uh, things, right? Um, like, I, I don't know how you even say they're the same and, and they're just translated and which one's better. We put them on a scale yeah. or something like that. It's, it's, a, it's a whole different team giving you that in that medium. It's its whole different thing. Yeah. I, I just, you know, to kind of put a, a bow on that, like we talked about earlier about how we have to learn to understand the medium for what the medium is. Yeah. So a movie is not a novel. Um, a TV show is not a novel. A TV show is not a movie. Uh, comic books are not novels or movies, even though they have graphic novels and even though comics look like storyboards. It's not quite the same thing. Yeah. Um, you can translate it as closely as you possibly can 
And when you do, it's going to oftentimes end up looking dead. Um, you know, you look at what Frank, Frank Miller tried to do with, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Frank Miller, comic book artist, translated his own Sin, Sin City, and he also translated The Spirit uh, into, you know, very accurate, looks just like the comic book panel. Zack Snyder has done that a little bit, too. Um, and it's interesting, yeah, but it doesn't quite, yeah. yeah, it doesn't quite feel right. Or, um, I think into the spider verse, uh, is or across the spider verse are counter examples because there you have something that's clearly very inspired by yeah. the look of a certain, um, era of the Spider-Man comics, but they made, this is our word, right? This is Martin Scorsese's word. They made cinema out of it. They made yeah. cinema out of it, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and that requires not just sort of a translation process, but um, a transformation process. Yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, so you have people who are fans of, say, the Lord of the Rings novels or fans of uh, the Harry Potter books or whatever they might be. And they might question, well, this was not, this is my favorite part of the book and it's not in the movie. Where's Tom Bombadil? Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, Nick, where is Tom Bombadil? (laughs) But I think you sometimes see if someone does an extraordinarily faithful version of the book, it doesn't work. It doesn't work as cinema or, you know, um, they're trying to do some of these things again now with television and it also doesn't quite work for whatever reason because the pacing is different. Sometimes chapters are short. TV shows are all the same length. They don't have to be in the streaming era, but they tend to be. Um, So, you know... Um, and, that, and speaking of limitations, you know the reason why, you know, uh, in the streaming era when you could very easily have 15-minute episodes and hour-long episodes, and some people do that, but by and large, the reason that everything is still kind of the same as it's always been in television is because that's how the contracts are written, hmm. you know, as to have to pay people for You can't pay somebody for a 15-minute thing like you can pay them for a 30-minute That was part of the right? strike deal that they came up with because yes. of the streaming and all this kind of thing. So as a result, we have this, you know, you can find a way to use that particular you know, thing about the medium um, or you can just try to squeeze your novel into, novel for television into little 30-minute hour-long blocks where it's not quite, doesn't quite work. Why are pop songs three and a half minutes long? That was the length of a 45. It's a 45, yeah. right? Um, but, and, 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 you know, if it, if it could have been anything, I think it wouldn't necessarily be better. I think that people crafting something within those limitations is its own beautiful form of creativity. Will Sheepherder's daughter be a movie or a TV show? No. <laughs> I, I mean, it's just not important or popular enough. But now I've told all you all about the deed of Paxinarian, and you all can go read it. Noel read it because Noel loves me and wants to understand me. <laughs> My youngest child read it over this past summer mm-hmm. and I appreciate it so much. But I also think it's not just about me. It's it's really a marvelous piece of work. Um, and you agreed once you read yeah, it. Yeah, very. Uh, Elizabeth Moon, The Deed of Paxinarian. It's very good. It's a trilogy. And then I immediately Googled, it, will this ever be a TV show? <laughs> or a movie? I, don't, no, I don't think it's been, I don't think, I don't think the rights have been sold. You can't take the easy yeah. way out, Will. Elizabeth <laughs> Moon lives in Texas, is Episcopalian. <laughs> Um, rides horses um, and uh, sometimes posts on on Twitter and will probably be dead soon because she's very old. But um, yeah, but not getting those that big movie rights money. Questions out there, things that have arisen, things that stand out for you. Is there a question you'd like to ask? Yeah, same. So uh, how would you recommend if someone wanted to, if someone like, okay, it sounds like you guys get more out of it. How do you recommend someone start? 
Um, read critics. I mean, that's self-serving because, you know, more, the more clicks, the more likelihood that I'll stay employed. Um, but it's true. I mean, that's how I grew up. I grew up reading, reading movie and TV critics and music critics uh, and comic book critics. I mean, I read all those people and heard their point of view and didn't always agree with them. I think that's the pe- people, I think sometimes get that twisted where they think that, you know, a, a good review is one that I agree with. No, no, no. I mean, you know, I, uh, the great film critic Pauline Kael, I've read everything she's ever written and half of it, I think she's dead wrong. Um, but I appreciate her mind and I appreciate, you know, engaging with what she has to say about things. So, yeah, I mean, um, uh, there are lots of resources on, you know, especially for geek friendly things. Lots of people who are writing about this, you know, find the ones who know how to write, um, that's typically a sign that they have had a little more experience because lots of people who are novices, you know, um, espouse. And you, if you can, if you have a good ear, you can tell just for the pros alone whether they're, you know, worth engaging with. Not that I'm saying they're worthless. I'm just saying that, you know, you, you're going to get a lot more out of somebody who can write something that, that where you're engaged by the actual writing itself, even more so than what they have to say. You know, um, you were talking about sort of the, the response. The, I, I want to watch it so I can respond to it. I am continually amazed as I continue to write for sites that, you know, ask me to write write things and then there's a comment comment section. I'm continually amazed by the number of people come to the comment section having read the piece. Yeah. I'm like, who are these people? I don't meet any of these people in the rest of my life, right? You just you, you hit get the headline and then you immediately respond, but we have readers. We have people who actually read it. Um yeah. and I, it's always kind of hard for me to believe in this day and age. But I don't think we talk about that being a reality. We act as if that, that, that's over and done with. Mm. And I'm here to tell you it is not. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, and I also like beware of clickbait. Uh, beware of like this is, you're, they're going to geek shame you if you haven't done this or done that. Where are the healthy spaces? Kind of like what we do in, hopefully in a space like this. We're the healthy spaces where we can have a conversation. You can learn and grow and recommendations. And what do you think about this? Those conversations, the healthy conversations. Rather I want to also way. point out to your question that one of uh, a, a, a feature Noel invented at the AV Club. Did you invent this? Did Keith invent this? The gateway to geekery feature or the primer yeah, feature. Right. So this was a, a, a gateway to geekery. Like, you know, if you don't know anything about uh, DC Comics, uh, like here's a little... Uh, Here's a little on-ramp for it. Yeah. Or the primer, which is something that you did a lot of, which is, boy, there's a lot of... Brian De Palma C- films. <laughs> Brian De Palma films, you know? Um, you know, what's the, what are the entry points? What are the more advanced things, you know? So um, those things still exist out there. Yeah. Noel wrote a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'd like to know, how do we understand and appreciate your crit- different forms of what you might call legitimate criticism? <laughs> Oh boy, yeah, we talk about this one. all Repeat the, the question time. Cases yes. There. Yeah. So, um, what le- I don't know whether legitimate criticism is the right term for it, um, but the politicization, as as opposed to the politicization, where um, what is important about a piece is whether it is ideologically pure, mm-hmm. right? And so we can dismiss something if it has a ideological weakness or we perceive it has one. And this has been a, a thorn in our side for the last, I don't know, however many in the years, but yeah. 
Yeah. Um, it's, it's tricky. I mean, there are people who, you know, this is all they do. This is what, they, this is how they engage with the world is to kind of look at it in those contexts. Um, and, and, and from all different political perspectives, I'm saying here, it's not just like there's people who, who have serious issues with, um, you know, the way certain things, uh, um, with their, you know, if they lean too far to the right or if they lean too far to the left or whatever it might be. Um, you know, yeah, I, I just want to mention that about uh, the left is maybe very bad at this. Um, <laughs> you, you watch a lot of documentaries, you write about a lot of documentaries. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about that is there's a lot of documentaries that have the, the correct view of a piece, but they are not good. Yeah. And it's one of the worst feelings. Like when you care about an issue and you're like, oh great, somebody's made a film of that issue and then the film is not good. Then that opportunity is lost. Yeah. Nobody's gonna finance another movie about this thing. And my job is to review the documentary. Yes. It's not to review whether or not it's right. Yes. You know, so, um, um, I mean, you know, I, I again, I, I try to have a very broad perspective on things. I like a lot of, uh, um, you know, particularly genre-focused stuff that one could say has a very strong right-wing slant. But I enjoy it. I enjoy it for both what it is and I enjoy it for engaging with what I think it's trying to say about the world. Um, and if I don't have to agree with it, but I can certainly, you know, uh, engage with it. Um, and so I think the, the answer to, you know, when you're reading other people's opinions and they seem to have a political slant, I guess the question would be what everything we've talked about here today. Are they engaging with it? Um, are they trying to meet it at its own level? Are they trying to understand what it's trying to say? Or are they checking boxes? Are they saying this does this, this, and this, either for fan service purposes yeah. or for, you know, this reinforces my worldview? Because, you know, I think it drives me crazier when I, when I see somebody criticize something and say, oh, uh, the main character in this does terrible things. Therefore, this is, a, this is bad. And I'm like, I think it's art. I think, you, <laughs> I think, think it's you're reflecting the world and you're trying to, you know, people in the world do bad things and sometimes they're the lead character. Frequently they're the lead character. That's good. Yeah, all, all art is propaganda, right? So it's kind of like, are you going to divert because some critics said this doesn't align with my political views and then I'm going to slam it or review bomb it so that it doesn't make enough money or it has this kind of uh, critic score um, so that will divert people from watching it because then that will hurt. Like all those things are definitely part of, of those things too. You know, it's, it's so interesting that you talk about that. Um, I, I think about something, uh, the movie that immediately came to mind is like First Reformed. Yeah. Or um, Dancer in the Dark. Okay. Mm -hmm. So these are movies where the character goes through this, you know, really tortuous existence. And then at the end, maybe the filmmaker gives them some kind of apotheosis, some kind of, some, like the filmmaker bestows some grace on that character and it's beautiful. But if you reduce that to, like the end and the end was all that was important. I think that's something people do a lot. It's like, here's how this thing concluded. And that is the meaning of the whole thing. No, the meaning of the whole thing is the process mm. of getting to that point. And I always see that, that moment of grace at the end as just truly a beautiful unearned, <laughs> like the filmmaker decided to be, to, to, to give this person something because that's in the filmmaker's power to do. But that doesn't mean that the, that's the meaning of the whole story. So even if you didn't like the lost finale, lost is still a good show. Book from Abrams Books coming out September, 2024. <laughs> you have a question? Go for it. 
is a really interesting case a uh, so, really interesting question so i'm coming at that from two directions number one i started uh being in american academy of religion spaces where people were talking about religion and film way back in like the late 90s and i was all excited about it and then i went to the spaces no offense to anyone who's in those spaces maybe i was just young and misunderstood but all i heard was we are just gonna find all the movies that have christ references in them Right? Every movie with a lead character is has the initials JC. <laughs> John Connor. Um, right? Who, right? All, you know, like, it was kind of just all about, like, ident it was a very immature discipline at that yeah. point. It was just kind of identifying things that we could find a religious reference in. So I... I, and then and then on the other side, I come to this as someone who like watched an episode of Breaking Bad or whatever, and then wrote my whole review about Kierkegaard, right? Um, because that's what it sparked in me. And I don't think my readers minded a whole lot. I think that they were like, oh, that's cool that that, you know, this has a resonance for you there. So it's maybe, maybe it's just that there aren't that many people who live in both places in that professional world, I feel like I'm pretty much alone. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. I, th I think you're right, though. I think it's hard for people to be, like, open about, you know, their, even if they're not, even if they're not, not a person of faith, uh, if they just understand from having grown up in a faith community and they can apply that understanding to the work they're watching, they don't. Um, because I think they're afraid they're going to be seen as, like, you know, what are you, are you proselytizing to me? What are you doing here? But I think you have to be aware. I mean, obviously we're talking about lost. I mean, that's all over lost. I mean, there's all kinds of like, you know, uh, you know, religious from all different kinds of religions. There are literal specific references uh, in that, in that show. Um, or I think about uh, the movie mother, the one that Jennifer Lawrence starred mm -hmm. in. So I, so I we was, love mother. <laughs> so I was, I was at a film festival where mother premiered. Um, and afterwards I was talking to a friend of mine and we had a third friend in the, in the room with us who had not seen the film yet. So we were like trying to talk in code and we both were absolutely convinced that we knew what mother was secretly about. And we were like, ha I figured it out. And it was like, you know, we don't want to say anything because our friends, our friend is over here. And so we kind of got off to a separate room and I realized he had no religious connotations at all. Zero. He had gotten nothing from the film that had anything to do with it being an old Testament, new Testament, any of that kind of stuff that I was reading into it. He didn't see it. And we just stared at each other for a while. And it was like, oh, okay. He had a whole, his whole thing was the movies about the act of creation, not in a God sense, but in just as a, as a person who makes movies or a person who makes art. And that was fascinating. But, you know, um, I think I, you miss something if you don't see that Aronofsky has that, you know, uh, as an intention, you know, along the way. Yeah. Everybody go see Mother. Um, yeah, and I think also, don't, also, don't sit on the sink. It's... It's not braced. Don't sit on it. <laughs> the, as you were saying, though, there's like there's a resonance of these eternal stories or the hero's journey or the 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 salvation history arc that is embedded in the stories we tell. We're all trying to tell the story of the, a longing for for something deeper or salvation. Like in terms of um, the Mandalorian season three, blatant baptismal imagery, and then you have Ahsoka, same. Thing. I'm like, of course, I'm a Lutheran. I'm like, yes, baptism, <laughs> you know? Um, and I'm like, I don't know their religious background, but I'm interpreting and seeing in this um, a deeper understanding of what we do in the sacrament of, of baptism, this kind of transformation, rise into new life. And so 
you know, I'm wondering if it's not being bleached or caused, but you're saying like in the reviews, people aren't acknowledging the religious overtones that's going on, but definitely people are writing them as either replacing the sacred texts that people are getting in, in churches that no, no longer go to, and they're looking for it in other spaces or, or. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think yeah. that's a really good point. <laughs> Preach. They don't enjoy but it's because it's like evangelical automatic response when you watch a film that your first version is I like this, but then you add some criticism that distances you from it. Yeah. So now I can I can talk about the film over here, but it is not connected. You don't have to identify it with me. And so the frustration for me is always that it really wasn't about never actually let the story mm-hmm. even if you completely disagree ideologically or whatever there's something in any piece of good art that is trying to challenge you so much into that pause that I think you were talking about okay we were just talking about my father Noel's yeah, right. father-in-law texting and saying to Noel have you written anything about the remains of the day now the remains of the day is a movie that we love beautiful merchant ivory movie right based mm-hmm. on the ishiguro novel mm-hmm. right my father is deeply embedded in that evangelical life and like typically you know watches just heartland tv or what whatever it is right that that reinforces that so to hear suddenly without explanation that he had seen this thing that wasn't in that world and wanting to know what we thought about it. It was so intriguing. Yeah. And then what do you say? Like, what kind of conversation do you have? Now, that's not a, that kind of movie, it's fine. There's nothing in there that we're going to have. But, I mean, that movie is also kind of a metaphor for England turning a blind eye before World War II. And so I pointed to something I'd written about that, you know, 20 years ago. And I don't know whether he saw that when he watched the film. But we can have that conversation. It's not, but I know we, this is kind of like the Darth Maul thing you were talking about. You know, you mentioned, you, mentioned, um, you know, uh, your parents. I remember one Thanksgiving... Uh, I was visiting with Donna's family and everybody there, all the adults are there. And E.T. was on like broadcast television and we were all just kind of watching E.T. because we'd all grown up watching E.T. Donna's mom uh, comes in, takes one look at that alien and is like, what are you guys watching? Like, you know, not being immersed in any kind of popular culture, she just saw this weird alien demon on television that we were all just sitting around enjoying watching like, you know, anyway, it kind of, it kind of ruined the moment. Yeah, no, I, I really E.T. versus Darth Maul. That I think that's such an interesting question. I would pay so much money for that. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that it's such an interesting question because it, it's more vital than ever because we are all like my, uh, Noel crosses over into these interesting areas. My parents watch Yellowstone compulsively as I'm sure some of you do. Actually, and maybe your parents do. Your dad stopped watching Yellowstone because it was too raunchy. It got too raunchy. Oh, yeah. no. Right? No. Oh, no. What did Kevin Costner do? Uh, but Knowles actually wrote the reviews of Yellowstone for the New York Times for the first season. No, for Vulture. For Vulture the, yeah. for the first season. So, like, there are places, like, and, and one of our common complaints, I think, is that the things that are most popular that people are actually watching out in the heartland like uh, we all write about prestige television, which is watched by no one, all of us in the critical world. No one is writing about 
your young Sheldons and your like the most popular, <laughs> you know, popular things in the world. And maybe and maybe it's because we think they're popular, so they're not worth anything. But I would argue not. But then also some of the stuff we geek out on can be a safe space to explore those questions that maybe in the political religious world yeah. is too volatile. So maybe you can yeah. play in the sandbox. Remains and that's kind of like, <laughs> yeah, like the sandbox of like sci-fi or, or superheroes can be a way, a softer entrance to ask the same questions that's going on in, in, in religion, I think. It doesn't yeah. put up the wall. Those it's disarming in a way. Like, all right, cool. I like stars, but let's explore this a little bit. What do you think it's saying? And it's a little bit easier than saying like, "What's your denomination? How does it handle <laughs> women in ministry versus mine?" You know, th th those kinds of things too. So we can talk about female heroes and what they're doing, how they're represented. Yeah, I'll, and, and I'll, those I'll close with with one thought. I think we're probably about to tie it up. But um, you know, Rod Serling created the Twilight Zone because he was doing, um, you know, issues of the day kind of television plays for television back in the 50s. And he finally got so fed up with having to deal with so many network notes. He, he did he did one <laughs> that was about the, the confirmation of a, of a, a political appointee. And he said that they had removed so much stuff from that, that script to make it so that it had no political ideology whatsoever, but it was so generic that he said, I may as well have been writing about space aliens. Wait a minute. <laughs> so the point being that, you know, people very frequently embed a lot of that kind of stuff into uh, genre pieces because they, they, you cannot do it otherwise without people getting all worked up about the real world connotations. Fantastic. Noel and um, Donna will be around for questions as we move on. And um, we'll come back here later on this afternoon. Oh, stay for lunch. We're really excited about the movie, actually. Noel's really excited about the movie uh, yep. that's going to be shown here. It's a creator that we love. It makes great documentaries, so we're so excited it's going to be shown. And how can people follow you or dive more into your work? Where can they find you online or where you're at oh and boy. do things? Yeah, Do some plugs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not on Twitter anymore. Uh, I'm on Twitter, but I'm not on Twitter anymore. Uh, so don't bother following me on Twitter. Um, but I am on Blue Sky, if you have a Blue Sky uh, account. And it's, it's Noel Mew, N-O-E-L-M-U. Um, that's typically my handle on most of the social media accounts. And same for me. I'm also on Blue Sky. I'm Donna D.B., Donna DB. And if you're on Discord or whatever, I'm Paxonary and everywhere there. Pax. Good. All right. Thank y'all. Yeah. Have a good lunch. Awesome. Thanks for coming. The Geek in Me honors the Geek in You. There you go. <laughs>